Welcome to this special edition episode of the Abraham Accords podcast. Given the situation in Israel this week, my co-host Fleur Hassan Nahum has kindly agreed to walk us through the background to the recent events, discuss some of the complex elements and consequences to the current situation. So let's get into it. Fleur, firstly, how are you? Look, I'm all right. I'm just feeling extremely bad and concerned for all the people who are living in shelters, running to shelters, children who are scared. I mean, we had one rocket, uh, well, one one siren, seven rockets um, to the Jerusalem region. And my kids have been freaked out since I had to drive my daughter to school this morning. Her school is only a 10 minute walk away. So yes, this affects this affects everybody. Um, so I'm very concerned and I'm praying praying for calm. Aren't we all? Definitely we are all praying for calm and peace. But in the meantime, one of the main issues that I've noticed in the media in the last few days is obviously a lack of clarity over actually what is really happening and also the build-up to the events of this week. Because this isn't something that just sparked in the last few days. There's a whole narrative that leads back over obviously many weeks leading up to this and, uh, you know, a perfect storm, as they say, created this situation. So there's a number of elements that we, we want to try and work through today to edu- yeah. educate really our listeners and the public on things that they're probably not hearing on the mainstream, yeah. dare I say, it, fake news media. So thank you yeah. for doing this. There's a lot to cover. And I want, of I want, course, Rob. I want to start with a few different topics that lead up to this. And really the first one is, the Palestinian elections. So Abbas called so-called democratic elections for the first time in, I think, 16, 17 years. He's been in power since 2004. And polls suggested that he wasn't doing so well. And then we have this issue in your neck of the woods around East Jerusalem voters taking part in the Palestinian elections and the, the the issues around that. Can you walk us through that topic a little bit, Fleur? Absolutely. So the, the supposed um, disagreement is in the fact that Jerusalem uh, Arabs living in the east part of Jerusalem should be able to vote in a Palestinian Authority election. Now, this is despite the fact that the Palestinian Authority is not in charge of them, does not provide anything for them. Uh, the Jerusalem municipality, they pay city taxes to us. We provide all the services they need, infrastructural development, um, uh, health services, transport. So the, the Palestinian Authority does nothing for them. And, and the question is, they, it's a symbolic thing. It's an empty symbolism, of course, because most of the Arabs in East Jerusalem you know, couldn't be bothered uh, to vote really for people who have zero influence on their lives um, and people who they believe to be corrupt in the first place. Um, but let me just make even tell you something even more ridiculous. The story of the vote um, from East Jerusalem is a complete farce because what Israel, the, the, the people that Israel, Israel said it would not facilitate um, the post office voting. But the post office voting only affects 6,000 people. 150,000 people can, you know, get on a bus, get in their cars, go to Ramallah and vote. It's only 6,000 people. Imagine this, what a small percentage that are actually only allowed to vote through their kind of local police station. So the whole thing 
is a complete uh, fake outrage to begin with and a fantastic excuse for them uh, to grab onto not to have the elections. Now, why doesn't Mahmoud Abbas want elections? Very simple. He's going to lose big time. People are really fed up. And this, uh, I'm telling you, this is not my opinion. This is um, a lot of my Palestinian friends who I speak to. And they tell me this is a corrupt dictatorship that only benefits Abbas and his family and his close friends. Everybody else, you know, as, as they get richer, everybody else gets poorer. Again, zero opportunity, zero job, zero economic development, nothing at all. A lot of corruption and protectionism and everything you can imagine. And people have had enough, especially young people. They've had enough. They want to change. You said it yourself, 2004. We're going into a 18th year of a four-year term, you know, and and so he's doing this primarily um, because he knows he was going to be losing big and he was looking for an excuse to cancel the election. It's absolutely, it's completely farcical because out of 200,000 votes, you know, 6,000 is, of course, a drop in the ocean. And so that, that's why it's a farce. I think the two questions that come to mind on this, and I, you know, I'm, I'm playing a little bit devil's advocate so we can educate our listeners. Those 6,000 people could technically be disenfranchised from this. So there is that question. And secondly, Israel has facilitated this voting process through post offices in the past. And just give us also a sense of what is the status of these Jerusalem Palestinians? Who do they belong to? Where, where is their citizenship? Do, do, they, do they have two dots of ID cards in Israel? Can they function as Israeli citizens? So that we can just understand this cohort of 6,000 people, where they sit within our geography. No problem. I'll explain it because it's complicated. And then, you know, um, anti-Israel groups like uh, Human Rights Watch, when they come out with their reports, they make no distinctions between the different uh, Arabs and Palestinian statuses that there are in Israel. And of course, it's ridiculous not to. So there's three types, uh, maybe now four types, but there's three types of status involving the Palestinians. There's the Arab Israelis, full citizens of our country, 15% of our country. They don't even, 90% of them don't even recognize, don't even call themselves Palestinian. They call themselves Arab Israelis. So they're uh, full citizens, equal rights in every single way. Um, and a very important part of our society and a minority group that we work very hard towards integrating and towards ensuring they have equal opportunities. Then you've got the West Bank Palestinians and in a sense, the Gaza Palestinians as well, who are part of the Palestinian Authority. Now, the West Bank Palestinians, um, you know, this was an area that between 48 and 67 was part of Jordan. And so most of them, have Jordanian passports, and they are part of the Palestinian Authority. Of course, the first group I spoke about, Arab Israelis, have got Arab, uh, have got uh, Israeli passports, like like you and I. The third group, and this is the hybrid that is the Jerusalem Palestinians, the Jerusalem Arabs. Again, not everybody um, calls themselves Palestinians. I don't want to call people what they don't want to be called, uh, and I don't want to call them, uh, you know, and I don't want to not call them what they want to be called. So it's a delicate thing. Um, but the residents of East Jerusalem who are Arabs um, have this kind of hybrid status, again, because of the mess of, uh, of the Jordanian occupation between, six, uh, between 48 and 67. And they um, are residents of the city, 
um, and they have the right to become citizens of the city since Israel annexed East Jerusalem, which means they all have rights to become citizens. Citizens of Israel. Yes, like the Arab Israelis. They have that right because of the annexation. It, it's, a, it's, it's a right that, that they have a right to be we confer to them as a matter of right. I think it's the right thing to do. Um, now, only about 12% of them have exercised that right. It, you know, our critics say it's, a, it's not a collective right, it's an individual right. That's true. It's not a collective right. Because there's people who don't want to. Why are we going to, you know, give citizenship to people who, who really don't want to? So why would we give them that? Um, unless they've asked for it. So that's the way we see it. Um, and so the, there's, the last few years, we've noted a lot of new applications, so much so that uh, the immigration ministry has opened up a branch in East Jerusalem because there's such a new wave of, um, of East Jerusalem Arabs who want to become citizens. And I, I mean, I, on an individual level, I've got, three or four, five friends that at every given point, I'm helping them with their paperwork, I'm helping push things along. Israeli, Israeli bureaucracy is the worst ever. And this is no exception. Um, and so people interpret it again. Everything in Jerusalem is interpreted politically, even when it's about incompetence and bureaucracy. Um, and I'm sure there is an element of politics in it. Oh, we're not going to make it so easy. There, I'm sure there's somebody there who thinks that, but certainly not me and certainly not uh, a lot of the good people that work uh, for these ministries. So they're the Jerusalem uh, um, Arabs. Um, that's the status. But as residents, they get everything that a citizen would get, everything. So health, they, um, we share the same health uh, services. We share, uh, we, we pay for the education, roads, public parks, infrastructural uh, development and everything else. The only thing the Jerusalem residents, Arab residents do not have that the citizens do have is the right to vote in a national election. Now, Israeli, the, the Arabs in East Jerusalem can vote in a local election. They could vote for me, theoretically, um, but most of them choose not to because on election day and of course leading up to it, they get a lot of bullying from the Palestinian leadership and Hamas not to vote because uh, by voting, they tell them, they're recognizing our sovereignty and it's an act of treason. I mean, they're, they're told ridiculous things. And so in a city council where they could have a significant block and advocate for even better services for their people, they do not exist. Now, two, like two and a half years ago, um, two... Um, Arab residents, one citizen, ran for office. My friend Ramadan Dawash, um, I wish he would have won. He's the head of the local council of Subakhir, and I work with him very closely. Um, I would love to have Arab representation in the city council. I really, really would. Apart from the fact that they deserve to be representatives of their own people, it would limit the power of the ultra-Orthodox a little bit, because at the moment, they're 50% of the council. And uh, it would be nothing better than horse trading uh, with the Arab representatives in order to be able to get stuff through which the ultra-Orthodox block us from doing. So, I, you know, I would love that. Really, I would love that. So, so very, very informative. And I think that helps people understand the status of these people, which is really important because what they're being told is, you know, these are people who are being disenfranchised, held back, 
and even ethnically cleanse when we can do it and push them into other positions. But this has created this perfect storm for Abbas because he's cancelled the elections. He knew he will, you know, had had pretty bad polling and may well secede to, to Hamas influence in the West Bank and, and lose his, his control of, you know, a dictatorial reign. But Hamas are now looking for relevance. They're looking for relevance exactly. as defenders of the West Bank, the defenders of the Palestinian people in this area who are being, you know, left alone by, by Abbas, who's, who said, sorry, no elections, we'll blame it on the Jews. They they haven't allowed voting of the of these people, which, as you just explained, is a very small group of people, um, nevertheless. Um, and, and they're seeking relevance. They're seeking relevance and you in that area. Absolutely. And I think we can't ignore a few things. I mean, as we said, this was a premeditated, this is something they've been planning for a while. Now, we already know the Palestinian motivation. Uh, Let's talk about Hamas's motivation for a second. So Hamas, as you said, they're searching for relevance, but also more than that, they're searching for linkage between Jerusalem and Gaza. Now, this cannot be underestimated because when you look at the most important thing to do with all these things is follow the money. So who is the sponsor of Hamas? We're talking about Iran. We're talking about elements of Muslim Brotherhood countries like Turkey even, um, who are actively encouraging this. And so Hamas has a a few things it's trying to do here. First of all, like you say, or like I heard a, a TV commentator the other day, they're doing their own primaries at the moment. This is their political campaign. A. B, they're searching for this linkage with Jerusalem so they can be the heroes of Islam. So, of course, they very determinedly, uh, you know, encourage vandalism in their own mosque that the police, uh, the Israeli police went in. And, of course, we're to blame for the for the vandalism that they did to begin with uh, once we tried to control the situation. Um, but um, but what's very important, what I think we can't lose track of and this is where kind of our story comes into it, Rob, is that there've been three game-changing things in the region, which makes Hamas and the Muslim Brotherhood very nervous. And that is in fact, the rapprochement between Jews and, and, uh, and Muslims and uh, Arabs and Jews. It, I, I boil it down to three things. First is the Abraham Accords. This is revenge for the Abraham Accords, remember, that the one of the reasons why the Abraham Accords happened uh, happened in the first place is because the Palestinian agenda is beginning to annoy the Arab countries who have been funding them, standing behind them for 72 years, and all they get is a slap in the face, ingratitude, and you know a, a leadership that that can't get its act together. Okay, that's really at its most basic level. Um, and that means that they've lost relevance and that their cause has lost relevance and that nobody's waiting for them. We're just getting on with it. They can't take that. And so they're looking to actively make a ridge between us and the Abraham Accords countries. And to a certain extent, they've succeeded when you've seen the statements coming out of the UAE and the Bahraini leadership, which is kind of sad. But I understand where they're coming from. It's a very old thing. They're used to working in a certain pattern. They haven't managed to break that pattern yet. And please, God, I'm hoping that eventually uh, the statements coming will be a little bit more balanced. So that's the first factor. This is also set against an environment in the Biden-Harris administration, which is going back to this policy of 
rapprochement and appeasement with Iran, the biggest state sponsor of terrorism in the region, who they're planning to re-enter the JCPOA with and enable with billions and billions of dollars for them to provide further money for missiles and God knows what else to their proxies across the region. And they feel emboldened. And this is a way for them to express that. Absolutely. I think that's definitely a factor. I'm not sure they would have pulled this with uh, with Trump in office because they know that they would have had zero sympathy. Um, so but, but the first thing is the Abraham Accords, which, of course, is game was game changing for the region. The second game changing event of the last month is that for the first time in Israel's history, the Arab parties are being considered legitimate government coalition partners. And the Arab parties, especially Mansour Abbas, who is Muslim Brotherhood light, he's supposed to be from the same type of philosophy. They are considering being part of the Israeli government. And this is something which to them is very concerning. And in this, I have to take my hat off to Mansour Abbas. He's saying, you know what, let's just put ideology aside for a second. I'm not going to be a Zionist, but... I want to better the lives of my constituents. And I have a, a certain respect for that. Um, and that bothers them no end, because again, it's all about normalization and just, and just getting on with it rather than um, making everything dependent on the and solving the Palestinian cause. Also on a, on a PR level, you have an Arab party in the Israeli uh, national government system who are essentially having the role of potential kingmaker of who's going to be exactly absolutely. absolutely where's the, where's the apartheid in this well we all know that that's of course a slander libelous claim and that it has zero um zero credibility and and, and is very insulting to the people who lived in an apartheid regime that where they couldn't sit in a cafe uh, with a white person and they couldn't go on the same bus with a white person. And anybody who comes to Israel after five minutes understands that it's completely liable and slanderous. Okay, so that's the second. The third factor is, to me, what's going on in Jerusalem, which is for the last five, six years, again, uh, the, the municipality, the Israeli government have uh, found and applied unprecedented resources to close social gaps. And this is something we should have done a long time ago. And I'm the first one to say, listen, we didn't know what we wanted to do with East Jerusalem for years. Left-wing governments, right-wing governments, nobody, everybody kicked the can down the road. And so they were under-resourced um, and there was, there, was under, there was less opportunity. But the last five, six years, um, we've really actively tried to change that. I work, Rob, day and night to bring investors to East Jerusalem, philanthropists to East Jerusalem, to build parks and high-tech parks and commercial uh, building and, and good, good faith and civil society uh, projects. Yesterday, you know, the irony of the world that we live in, you know, we have a rocket attack on, uh, on Tuesday night, on Monday night, and on Tuesday morning, I'm in Abu Tor, a mixed Jewish-Arab neighborhood, you know, opening up an innovation center and finding ways to help them in order to do better services for their community. That is the life we live in here. But if you go to any gym or any cafe, we live an integrated life. Yes, we live in different neighborhoods. So do the ultra-Orthodox. But ultimately, in our parks and our gyms and our public spaces and our shopping malls, you see Arabs and Jews alike. And so this is something that changed over the last five to 10 years. But Hamas doesn't like that. So when you look at these factors, you look at Mah um, Mahmoud Abbas with his kind of uh, wanting to 
wanting to uh, push off the election because he knows he's going to have big losses. You see Hamas trying to be relevant um, and trying to make a linkage, you know, with Iran, uh, linkage to Jerusalem so they can be the defenders of the faith. And it's a perfect cocktail. And then, of course, you have the stuff going on in Jerusalem, you know, which is, the, I think, the mistake of the of the army or the police to begin with to put those barricades. I listen. They did it for crowd just, control. Just, 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 just for our listeners, let's just take them back. So we're talking about here up on the Temple Mount. This is obviously the month of Ramadan, a obviously very holy month in the Muslim calendar, and we have Israeli security forces on top of the Temple Mount for very justifiable reasons. Created. Well, it didn't start with that, Rob. It didn't start with being on top of the Temple Mount. It started at the exit of Damascus the, the Gate, Damascus Gate right. which is not, which is the exit down into the town. Okay, let's say that way, not on Temple Mount. And there, there's like a little amphitheater. I've been there and I've sat there many times. I've given talks there. I've, I've done tours there. Anyway, so there's a little ampy and people hang out, you know, after services, they hang out, they sit around, um, you know, they chat, they buy something to eat and a drink. And and this was and this really was, I think, a really honest mistake. Remember what we had the week before in Israel. What happened the week before in Israel? We had a stampede, okay, in 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 Har Merom that the police got a lot of flack for. Okay, so then you have a stampede the week before. You have us coming out of Corona, and you have a hundred thousand people on Temple Mount coming out through one exit. So the the police they didn't think again. Like I said earlier, any little thing becomes political, any little thing in the city. So the police put barricades up because they wanted to crowd control. This wasn't a malicious thing to, you know, to, to, to trample on the rights of Muslims to sit and hang out after, after the services. This was a crowd control. And I think it was a mistake. So they did this. Everybody started getting angry. The mayor of Jerusalem, my boss, Moshe Leon, worked very hard to get those barricades removed and he succeeded. After a week, they were gone, okay? So we talk about a month after a week they were gone. And of course, that caused its whole, uh, the whole thing. In which time the Al-Aqsa Mosque and other areas around the Temple Mount were suddenly um, fortified and also loaded with stones and catapults and other um, you know, items to cause violence, damage, hurt to Israeli forces who was to secure the area. I mean, again, Absolutely. You know, I've, I've personally never I, taken rocks to show. Um, well, you know, I, had a, yeah, I, I had a debate the other night with somebody who said to me, oh, the Muslim world will never forgive the Jewish world for this, um, you know, um, for going into the Al-Aqsa. Uh, you know, what would happen if it was happening in a synagogue? I said, I've got news for you. Nobody schleps in suitcases full of rocks to synagogues. But putting that aside, there's lots of good uh, you know, Muslims, Arabs in East Jerusalem who simply go to pray in peace. These are troublemakers that Hamas have been have been uh, hotting up. Hamas has been inciting, encouraging. This is not the regular the regular guy who goes to pray in Temple Mount for the Ramadan. This is a group of troublemakers who went there with the single purpose of making us look bad and making a combustible situation explosive. And so that is that is the motivation. And then let me just mention Sheikh Sharah, because this is something I've been asked so many times about. And I've really, I'm a lawyer by profession, as you know. So I've also been looking at the law and looking at, at what this is about. 
And again, this is a legal issue turned into a political scandal because it's, it's, it's because of where it is. So the story is that the Sheikh Jarrah neighborhood in, before 1948 was called the Shimon Tzaddik neighborhood. Why? Because Simon, the righteous, Shimon Tzaddik, uh, he's buried there. So this was a Jewish neighborhood uh, called Shimon Tzaddik. Um, and in 1948, when, um, when, um, when the War of Independence was launched against us by all of our surrounding neighbors, um, the Jews who lived in this neighborhood were expelled or killed. But just, just, just before we go on, just to give the background for, you know, close to 100 years before that, this land was purchased by private citizens in yeah, the, from in the, the British Mandate era. Palestine and even before then with a, before. Before, with, with a continuous property title of ownership that led from about 1870 through to 1948. So yeah. this is an important point. The point is that we have a property dispute, okay? With one side with legal documents proving ownership and the other side with no documents at all. It's not two competing ownership uh, dispute. It's one ownership dispute. These are private individuals. This is not the private state individuals, of Israel. Not at this all. This is Palestinians. This is private individuals exactly. who own this land. Exactly. And the land then went on to a trust, a Safari trust, uh, because it was uh, mainly Safari families. And basically, we have a property claim against a squat, squatter claim. Now, because we have an equitable system of law, Rob, and because we protect our minorities in this country, we really do, the court and the owners offered them a very fair solution, which was, you know what, you don't have to get kicked out of your home. You can declare protected tenancy, okay? We'll even, if you want to leave, if you by any chance want to leave, we'll compensate you. But if you don't want to leave, you can stay within a protected tenancy and you can never get kicked out. But it's not yours. You have to recognize my right of ownership and I'll recognize your right of residency. Okay. What happens? They agree. And then the Palestinian Authority sends its lawyers from Orient House and basically railroad these families into not accepting the compromise and fighting it in court. In other words, they are, it's in their interest for scoring cheap political points for these families to get kicked out. And so they actively work towards not finding a legal solution. They're representing the families. The families have said in anonymity that they're being bullied into not accepting a compromise. So again, this is the Palestinian Authority, the Palestinian leadership, you know, throwing its own people under the bus for the sake of scoring a diplomatic victory. And you know what? They did. They really did. Look, the, op the, optic, the optics are horrendous. Because horrible, we, horrendous. We can, we can talk about the facts that this is land owned by Jews. This is undisputed ownership that there it was, it was a 50-year period where Palestinian Arabs were able to live in this land, live in these buildings rather, and basically have stopped paying rent. And this is a private civil legal dispute over people who are failing to pay their rent. They now need to be evicted like in any normal country around the world. But obviously the optics are just horrendous because the world yeah. sees Jews but, moving Arabs out of land. Yes, yes. Um, and so and so this is really something 
which is painful. But when people don't want to help themselves because they're being bullied not to, then people have to know that this is the truth. This is what's going on. Um, yeah. My question for you is also around the PR because we just spoke about optics. Let's think about our newfound friends in the Abraham Accords family of countries. And unfortunately, reading some of the statements that are coming out of the UAE and Bahrain over the last 24, 48 hours, I feel like they haven't been educated by us on the truth because the situation in their, in their mind and the statements that they're making are the old style statements. Oh, Jews shouldn't be moving Arabs out of existing land. Oh, Jews are stopping Muslims from praying properly on the Temple Mount. This is a falsehood. It's a lie. And we as Israel are not doing a good PR job, which unfortunately we haven't done for a very long time. Yes, there are untold Hasbara advocacy organizations out there. But I've said for a long time, they're very much, a, you know, that make us feel good. We're shouting in our own echo chamber. You and I can talk about this all day long. We're always going to agree. But we need to get that message out to the wider world. And Israel's doing a bad job at this. I'm saying nobody's talking from our side. I'm literally doing press interviews morning, noon and night because this started in Jerusalem um, because I'm uh, in charge of foreign affairs and, uh, and, uh, and communications for the city. Um, so I've been, but, but the point is that, that nobody else is, is talking uh, about our side of the story. And of course there is one. And I, and I, and I, yesterday I gave a special briefing, um, to my, our UAE, um, friends. And as again, I said, you know, I'm of course representing the Israeli side, but, you know, read a, a variety of different opinions. Um, nothing, nothing is ever black and white. And you shouldn't think that this is black and white either. Um, there's, there's many shades here. It's a very complicated, combustible situation. I'm not saying we're perfect. I'm not saying we haven't made our mistakes. Um, we make mistakes all the time. But, you know, to take it to the point that, 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 that we're, you know, desecrating a mosque, that we're celebrating a burning tree where people were dancing there to begin with, to circulate these images knowing knowing that they will cause violence for TikTok to allow a viral video of, uh, of, Muslim, of, of our boys beating up ultra-Orthodox Jewish boys and for TikTok to kind of knowingly let this go viral. I don't understand what to even make of them and how we can stop this, but it's absolutely ridiculous. But I can't agree more. And the TikTok intifada, as it's being called, that is being fueled by, you know, very smart people on the Hamas side who have realized the power of social media in cultivating and whipping up a storm within the young Arab community, both within the, um, you know, West Bank areas, Gaza, and, and, and even now we're seeing smaller groups I hope it doesn't become something bigger, even within the Israeli Arab community. We're seeing, you know, in Lod, for example, really upsetting scenes, synagogues on fire, synagogues on fire, cars on fire. To me, that's the saddest thing about this whole thing, that just as we were really going into the next stage of, like we were going through our own kind of internal Abraham Accords, this has to happen. But again, 
Look, yesterday I had um, two friends of mine who are, one is Druze, one is uh, Muslim Arab from the north of Israel in my office talking about joint projects. And they're telling me also, listen, Fleur, this is a specific group of troublemakers that give us all a bad name. Just like Rob, we also have a group of troublemakers who give us a bad name. Um, you know, we just know how to control our group of troublemakers much more easily. Um, so, so yeah, that to me is is really a disturbing thing, just as we were moving forward. So I'm, listen, ultimately at the moment, the whole country is under attack. Children are scared. Um, we need this to end quickly with the least bloodshed possible. But Israel is not a country that is going to allow uh, this violation of its sovereignty in such a in such a crazy way, and uh, and we're not going to finish until until we feel safe, and people should understand that we we are a small country, but we're a strong country. We're very resilient, and we're not going to let our people remain in danger in this way. And uh, and this is you know we have to stand behind our uh, security forces and anything they need to do to stop this. I know you've got a busy day ahead given your role and obviously events that are surrounding this week. All we can hope for is uh, peace that ultimately we'll all be able to come out the other side of this with a renewed sense of how we can live together. The Abraham Accords that obviously we're so involved with are a great example of that. So look, thank you for your work. Have a good rest of the week as much as we can. Um, and, and thank you for sharing some of the insights on the background to this situation. Thanks, Rob. And stay safe, you and your family. And uh, please, God, next time we talk, we'll be doing so after this horrible, these horrible events. Thanks, Flo. Take care. Thank you for joining Flo and I on the Abraham Accords podcast. Remember to subscribe so you can be updated on more episodes.